Welcome back to Kicking and Streaming, where we're here, we're queer, put us in the pictures. I'm Carrie. I'm Ross. And this week, we are uh, changing the form up a little bit. This week, we are going to be doing another listicle. We're going to be talking about our top five favorite queer performances. Ah, uh, yes. In film and TV. I'm yes. sorry. All of my selections are in TV. They are. I'm sorry. Like, these are performances by actors who are queer. Not necessarily that they play queer actors, although in many cases <laughs> in our selection they do. Indeed. But it will just, that that will not be the running theme. Like, guys, we're trying to celebrate queer art here. Mm-hmm. Like, queer performances. I love performances by queer people. And like, guys, I just, uh, I, I love that we're all here. Happy end of Pride Month, everybody. Absolutely. The gays are better at acting. They always have <laughs> The drama. They truly have. That's why all of your gay friends were in drama club. Like, <laughs> this is not a secret. Before we get started, don't forget, go follow us on Twitter at Kick and Stream. K-I-C-K-N-S-T-R-E-A-M. You can write the show at Kicking and Streaming Podcast at gmail.com. That's with an and, not an ampersand. And don't forget, folks, please be practicing the three R's. Rate, review, retweet. Rate, review, retweet, folks. We want everyone to come and join our little watch party. Guys, I believe at this point in the timeline, it's difficult to know because podcasting is in the past and in the future at the same time. Indeed. But I believe our John Adams content has begun on the Patreon. I think we released a little bonus, a little little look-see into what we'll be talking (laughs) about for the Patreon. So, guys, please go over and check that out if you're not already. A Little Onion at the Five. Guys, become a little Onion contributor at the $5 level. You'll be so glad you did. You get access to all of our long-form content, all of our bonus episodes, all of our outtakes. We're doing some stuff outside the timeline for you, and we're covering television. So please, guys. Yeah, normally we've committed to two posts a month, but now your value is about to double. Mm -hmm, Indeed, because you're you're getting twice the fun. You guys are going to get long-form content through Halloween. Oh, long-form season. Mm. (laughs) Guys, I love me a listicle. As I said the last time we did this, Yours are going to be all emotional choices again, aren't they? Oh, shut up. No, you've, I think you've got a pretty great, I think you've got a pretty good list coming, but you want to switch it up. Last time you went first and we played that whole game to see who would go first and it lasted forever. So to save you some editing time, I'm just going to go ahead and go first. Oh. Per your request. No, it's okay. I'm I'm remembering just now that that was a thing. <laughs> and like, guys, just just do me the kindness of realizing that that was literal years ago at this point. Uh, it's only two. <laughs> it's only two years ago. Years plus but... more than one. Mm-hmm. That's years. And, you know, I, I re-listened to the Top 10 Female Performances episode we did in March of 2020 again and that's where we start out by me singing I know of a place where you never because the lockdown had just started yeah when we recorded that and (laughs) our lists were kind of weird I feel like at that point in time (laughs) like I feel like we should I almost want to redo that episode because I feel like there are better choices yeah I know Uh, but like I I did like all of our selections me today on the phone saying like we gotta finalize these top five queer actors (laughs) like I want to do Jody, but do I do her for Flight Plan or do I do her for Silence of the Lambs and I re-listened to top ten female performances and we both picked Jodie Foster (laughs) me for Flight Plan you for Silence of the lambs because i was raised right yes (laughs) absolutely not you just me (laughs) absolutely (laughs) all right guys let's get this listicle started we're gonna talk about some queer actors doing great performances like i said not all of these characters portrayed here from these subjects are going to be queer but most of them are yeah no (laughs) 
Not all queer characters, but yes, all queer actors. We're going to talk about some of our favorite moments from that character in the content that we are specifically picking them from. We're going to be telling you, I think with the non-queer characters, we should pick out some moments where the queerness leaks through (laughs) in the performance, because you've got one where that's definitely a thing. Okay. And I can't wait to talk about it. Guys, we are going to alternate back and forth. Ross is going to do his fifth person. I'm going to do my fifth person. And so on and so forth. And so on and so forth. All right. You ready? I am ready. I know you're ready. Number five. Uh, For my number five pick. I have got Chris Golfer as Kurt Hummel in Glee. All of you stop coming for me right now. You turn this podcast back on. I know you just turned it off. Everyone stop judging me, okay? Listen, I understand your choice here. No, listen. Ryan Murphy creations are always a little whack. But the thing that I like about the Kurt Hummel character in Glee is that that character was never originally meant to be a part of the show. Really? And Chris Colfer made this a character. Ooh! So 2008, 2009, they're having their first auditions for Glee, this show about this high school in the middle of Ohio where we're going to solve our social issues by singing a bunch of show tunes with Matthew Morrison, (laughs) Broadway's Matthew Morrison. It worked out so well. Chris Colfer made this character for himself without even meaning to. He went into audition and he did... Mr. Cellophane as his audition song from Chicago. Yeah. And the thing is, Ryan Murphy really loved his audition, Mm -hmm. but didn't really have a character that he would be suitable for. He's obvious. Listen, stereotyping aside, Chris Colfer is very, very gay. (laughs) And I know. I mean, like. I know what you mean. God love him. You're not trying to be ugly. You're just saying, we know. (laughs) I love that interview. He's on, like, George Lopez or something, like, his talk show. And he's like, yeah, whenever as as a child, whenever I'd answer the phone, my father would go, oh, hey, Carol. And I'm like, no, it's your son. (laughs) Um. God love him. Chris Colfer, if you ever stumble upon this, we love you. No, I identify with that because you know how many times I answered the phone as a kid and they're like, Julie? And I'm like, no. (laughs) This is Ross. The way you've been mistaken for a lesbian (laughs) in public. Absolutely. That guy that walked up to me at that bar, I'm like, excuse me, ma'am, where's the bar at? And I just went, over there. love you so much. It's the tits. It's my magnificent man rack. And my shaven face sometimes that leads people to be like, hmm. Ryan Murphy just was charmed as hell by his audition and just really loved him as a person that he wrote a new character to cast Chris Colfer in. Amazing! And that was Kurt Hummel. That's some king shit right there. The first time I ever experienced the character of Kurt Hummel was in your bedroom. You were watching Glee on the computer or something. Oh, no. And Glee hadn't been out for very long. And I was like 13. And I walked in. And it's like, I think it's like, not if not the first episode, like the second Schuster, who is the leader of this little gang of misfits, this high school glee club, is trying to choreograph a rendition of Sit Down, You're Rockin' the Boat. (laughs) A show choir rendition of Sit Down, You're Rockin' the Boat. Sit down, you're rockin', rockin' the boat! From Guys and Dolls. Arguably a very gay musical. And... Okay. And, like, they're all trying to do the moves, and they can't do it for shit. 
and they're complaining to Schuster about it, and he's like, no, it's not the moves. You guys just got to get into it. And Kurt, without skipping a beat, flings his finger up and goes, no, it's the song. It's really gay. (laughs) And that had me sold on the show. That was what sold me on the show. I was like, I need to watch this show. And no, it's the song. It's really gay. And like... (laughs) That was just so immediately endearing to me <laughs> that I fell in love with him. Fun fact about the about Kurt's character. His last name, Hummel, he's named after the little Germanic <laughs> Hummel dolls. Like the ones with the the porcelain dolls with the rosy cheeks. Because that's what Ryan Murphy thought Chris Colfer looked like was a Hummel doll. I love that. Kurt lives with his father, who is very macho, very straight, and his poor his poor mother passed away when he was like seven, and he has a rough relationship with his dad at the beginning of the series because oh, yeah. he thinks his dad doesn't know he's gay and he doesn't know how to say anything, like trying out for the football team to make his dad think he's manly. Oh, God. And he becomes like the kicker, or what is it called? The, I don't know the sports. The kicker, the guy that kicks the ball at the beginning. Feel at the beginning? I, I don't know. Guys, <laughs> this is how gay we are. Um, I don't know. Not feel gold because that's a different thing. But then he just inspires the whole football team to do a rendition of All the Single Ladies by Beyonce <laughs> in front of the whole school at a football match. The next player that can get a football between those uprights will get his job. Hi, I'm Kurt Helmel, and I'll be auditioning for the role of kicker. That was a magical time in television. Wasn't it, though? We had watch parties for Glee. Football players doing something gay, like... It was a literal episode of The Office, Ross. It wasn't even gay. It was just very feminine. Like... (laughs) We're talking about two different things. (laughs) Yeah, no, and... Like, Kerr also has his wonderful own journey. He has to confront that horrible bully and eventually has to change schools, which is something that a lot of queer kids have had to deal with in their lives. And, like, his little, his cute little relationship with Darren Chris, <laughs> Blaine or whatever that character's name is. I don't know if that lasts or not. I don't think I ever got all the way to the end of Glee. No, I never did. You know when I knew it was gone? When? Because that's the, the thing about Ryan Murphy's series. <laughs> the first season, first piece of content release. Chef's kiss. Great. That was amazing. But then it all goes to his head. Exactly. And then he just does whatever he wants. (laughs) And this was like the fifth. There's like six seasons of Glee. This was like the fifth season. I already knew it was gone way before this, but like, of course, it was like a season five episode and it was like an Avenue Q style episode. No. With all of the characters having their own puppet versions. No. And I was watching them sing a number together with these puppets around a piano on an auditorium <laughs> stage. We don't, the, the band kids are a whole other conversation. We need a whole podcast just for the band kids on Glee. I want them to come forward and tell their stories. Okay. Because what the fuck? Anyway. Just as a drop of the hat doing anything anywhere for any of these kids. Avenue Q puppets. Anyway, and they're just singing this song, and I'm watching, and I literally said to myself in my head, what the fuck am I watching? (laughs) 
what is this? Is this the, are we running out of ideas? A little bit. It's like, hire some different writers. <laughs> Kurt is one of the characters that gets out of Lima, Ohio. He goes and tries to live his truth in New York City with that horrible hag, Rachel Berry. And Santana. Remember, Santana moves in. God love. I know. I know. God bless. A fun fact I love about Chris Colfer in high school is he directed and wrote and put together a gender-bent version of Sweeney Todd the Demon Barber of Fleet Street called Shirley Todd. What? And he played Mr. Lovett <laughs> in it for his high school. I'm like, that's just amazing. That is amazing. But, uh, he's an advocate for victims of epilepsy. His sister Hannah struggles with it and has struggled with it severely her whole life. Uh, he's a writer. He's an author. He's a children's book author. He's he, struck by lightning. He wrote that book that then got made into a movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I was just like, when I when that was all happening, I was like, Chris. Yeah. You thought you were going to be stuck in this town your entire life. And here you are. Yes. Like thriving. He's thriving. And I and I hope that he's having a nice little life cuz he's not like really in the mainstream anymore. Like he's not in a lot of movies or TV, but like I he's got his royalties, you know? Like <laughs> he's also he's got his book royalties and his record royalties. I know. Cuz he's in that ensemble recording of everything, you know. And like listen guys, I'm going to end this segment appropriately by playing you guys a clip from a podcast in which Chris Colfer and other Glee cast members become ecstatic of the idea of Leah Michelle being jettisoned during some turbulence on a plane because that's how much they hated her. The way they're laughing gives me life. Oh my God, do you remember when, when we hit turbulence and Leah was walking from the bathroom to her seat? <laughs> she went flying into the air. All right, guys, we're going to kick it over to Carrie Ann. Guys, I've chosen for my fifth choice of queer performances, I've chosen Robin Lord Taylor, (laughs) who is a gay man. (laughs) And Ross is laughing because he knows I've been on a Batman kick since, like, I don't know, mid-May. Yeah. And so (laughs) he's sick of hearing about it, but goddammit, he's going to hear about it again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He was born in Iowa. He earned a Bachelor's of Arts in the theater at Northwestern University, where he was roommates with, you'll never guess who, Mm. Billy Eichner. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm not kidding you. Are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) I'm not kidding you. Oh, listen. Billy Eichner's fine. He's fine. He's entertaining. <laughs> I don't like him. He he annoys me. And guys, the role for which I've chosen him for today is his portrayal of Oswald Cobblepot in the Fox Network show Gotham. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is- mm-hmm. I've seen some of it, guys. <laughs> I've not seen the whole thing. I'm not an avid fan. And I was like, <laughs> me watching it with you when we were Camp Plague. We were at Camp Plague here together. Yes, we were. And we were like taking turns binge watching things that neither person wanted to watch. No, no, it was fine. Like, at the same time, like, I was very interested. Ba- Batman's like Carrie Ann's favorite superhero. So, like, I was all I already have been inundated with Batman content my whole life. But at the same time, it was funny. It was fun to see this dramatized prequel version of events to Batman in this. It was it's insane. No, that's a very what you just said is a very dignified way to articulate what most fans of Batman think of Gotham, which is that it's glorified fan fiction. Indeed. But you know what? I don't give a shit. 
Like, <laughs> I just, I'm so sorry. I don't. I've seen many iterations of the penguin throughout my life. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, Burgess Meredith is classic. Mm-hmm. And then you have Danny DeVito, who is just creepy scary. and all. Scary. Scary as hell. Scary and creepy in all senses of Unlimited the word. Unlimited I. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and then there's 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 the latest rendition, the Colin Farrell Penguin. Listen, who, that movie was so good, and he was part of what made it so good. He was. I was. I was getting ready to pay him a compliment. I'm like, I also like that. But, like, guys, the Robin Lord Taylor Penguin is just my favorite. Gotham dubs this Oswald Cobblepot gay. I know, yeah. As a queer character. He is a gay man, Oswald Cobblepot. Because he's really into the Riddler. Yeah. <laughs> Edward Nigma. He infamously falls for Edward Nigma during the Who he the wants series. to Edward Ligma. Stop! What is wrong with you? Ligma balls. Like, Stop it! I'm sorry. Listen, from the, from the bits and pieces I have watched of that with you, his obsession with the Riddler, it's not healthy. No, it's it, not. It's not healthy, babes. You know what? I almost <laughs> don't believe that. What did I say to you about his portrayal of him? He makes me believe that the penguin almost isn't really evil. I know, right? At heart. That's the thing about Gotham, man. Gotham in its narrative makes you want good things for the penguin, even though he's evil, because we get to see his rise from like a nobody up into the top crime boss in Gotham. But like the way he plays him, he makes me feel like, you know, he's not even, he doesn't even want to be evil. He's just being evil to fit in with everybody. I know. You know what I mean? That he's actually maybe a good person, but like. Gun to my head, if I had to pick a favorite moment, of that show, and guys, yes, spoilers, it's been out for years. Like, <laughs> go to Netflix, yeah, give it a watch. There's this episode, I want to say it's in season four, but I can't remember, where Oswald saves the Riddler. You know, after, this is all after having- Oh, hav- fucking duh. Well, yeah, no. <laughs> this is all after having, you know, confessed his love to him and all this stuff. Wow. Oswald killed one of his girlfriends. Eventually, Cobblepot saves him from being captured by Gordon and the GCPD. And he takes him to the same pier that Gordon almost shot him at in the first episode. Mm-hmm. And, like, makes him feel like he's gonna be let go. And then at the last second, you know, he's teamed up with Ivy, Poison Ivy, and Mr. Freeze at this point. Why didn't you just kill me, Oswald? You were the one time I let love weaken me. And I want you around as a constant reminder to never make that mistake again. Mr. Freeze frees him in a block of ice and he turns him into like a centerpiece for his new lounge. That's incredibly gay. I know, right? (laughs) He freezes him in a block of ice and then puts him at the center of the Iceberg Lounge, which is a famous night spot owned by Penguin in this lore. Mm -hmm. I just, I love that moment so much. Number four and... Guys, for my number four pick, I have chosen honored lesbian Lily Tomlin for her portrayal of Deborah Fitterer in The West Wing. I'm so shocked you picked Deborah and not Miss Frizzle. Listen, I love the magic school bus. It's near and dear to my heart. We learned all about it in school. Yeah. It was the hangover subject. (laughs) 
<laughs> when the science teacher when was the, hung over. The science teacher's hung over. They pop in the magic school bus and away we go. You know, like, <laughs> that's fine. I, she will always be timeless for Miss Frizzle. But I'm choosing her for Deborah Fitterer. Okay. Because I love the West Wing. Deborah Fitterer does not become a character until, like, season four. Because... As we know, the fictional administration of President Josiah Bartlett, Democrat of New Hampshire, in NBC's The West Wing, uh, he has a very devoted secretary slash caretaker slash sister. Mrs. Landingham? Dolores Landingham. And she's a <laughs> cherished character throughout the first two seasons of the show. Mr. President, I don't think that's a good idea. You know that temper of yours, Mr. President? It's your diet. <laughs> And so, but tragically, at the end of season two, Dolores Landingham's character is killed off Mm. in a horrible car accident. The first time in her life, she's bought a new car. She's in her 60s and she is hit by a drunk driver. And it's wrenching. It's actually wrenching. That's two cathedrals. No, yeah, that's a great episode. That whole arc is amazing. 25th and Potomac. That episode and then two cathedrals, that that whole arc. Mm, It's great stuff. When he decides he's going to run again. Oh, Ross. I'm sorry, you're right. Again, way off base. Get to Lily Tomlin. Anyway, and so uh, President Bartlett spends the whole of season three without a secretary. (laughs) The entirety of it. And Charlie Young, played by Dulé Hill, who we love on this podcast, (laughs) is like, Mr. President, I'm tired of doing two jobs. Can you please hire a new executive secretary to the President of the United States? And he's like, all right. And when we meet Debbie, she's actually a former White House employee, but she was terminated for the very fact that she hired Charlie Young to begin with Uh at the beginning of the series. (laughs) I don't remember the specifics of why she would be terminated for that, but Charlie is trying to repay, you know, his career debt to her by hiring her to be the president's secretary. And Debbie has quite the resume. She was executive secretary to the chairman of the International Olympic Committee. Mm -hmm. She was personal assistant to Jack Kent Cook, the owner of the Lakers. (laughs) She, she also served with general counsels in U.S. Congress. And, you know, he thinks she's exquisitely qualified for the job. Her life is kind of falling apart when we first meet her. It is. That's at the end of season three. But at the beginning of season four, she's really being vetted for the job. And one of my favorite moments of Debbie, because, because like she shows up high to the interview. She gets a second interview by the grace of God because <laughs> Charlie is convinced Debbie is the one for the president. Oh, God. And, you know... Jed wants nothing to do with this woman after she insulted him twice in their first job interview and she was high. And by the grace of God, she gets another interview. It's in season four, episode three. It's called College Kids. It might be my favorite episode of The West Wing. Oh. And, you know, my favorite Debbie moment. Debbie said something publicly, out loud, to a reporter or something concerning the World Bank. And, you know, the World Bank's always bailing all the superpowers out for whatever they want. (laughs) The quote is, let's put some poison in President Bartlett's drinking water and see if he defers to the World Bank then. (laughs) What? And she's kind of in trouble with Charlie for making this quote. She was joking, obviously. <laughs> but on the record joking, you know what I mean? And, like, the, the the last interview between the two of them, Jed and Debbie, is not going well. And <laughs> he just goes, you know what? I give up. Never mind. Don't worry about it. I don't know what that means. You can get the job. Great. Why? Why? Because you knocked me out, that's why. How did I do that? And Jed walks over to her, puts on his reading glasses, and takes a piece of paper out of his pocket and reads the quote, and he goes, Let's stick some arsenic in President Bartlett's drinking water and see if he delegates responsibility to the World Bank then. 
President Bartlett. He referred to me and to the office with respect. Your class act. Thank you, Mr. President. Whack job. I love that moment. And he go and she goes, Good night, Mr. President. And as he's walking out the door, he goes, Whack job. <laughs> and she goes, Yes, sir. And you can see as the Secret Service agent closes the door, she's like jumping around with joy that she got the job. I mean, what a moment for that character anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just the way Lily Tomlin is able to just match anyone. You know what I mean? Exactly. Match their energy in the room. She's one of the most accredited comedians in you know all of entertainment history. And the thing is, she doesn't play a lot of queer characters either. Even in Grace and Frankie! I know! Where Martin Sheen is, where President Bartlett is playing a gay man, but she's not playing a gay woman. <laughs> The gay man who stole her husband away! I just really love the Sorkin dynamic of (laughs) Martin Sheen and Lily Tomlin being in the West Wing, and then Sam Watterson and Jane Fonda being in the newsroom, and then all four of them being together on Grace and Frankie. It's great. It's absolutely great. Now let's kick it on over to Carrie Ann. My number four is bisexual actor Raul Esparza. Mm-hmm. Guys, I mean, if you don't know him, I mean, just. You some... need to be held by him if you don't know him. <laughs> I would like him to hold me. I need to be held by him. He's a Sondheim baby. Like, he's been a number of Sondheim shows. He was nominated for a Tony in Company. If you guys like Hannibal, that TV show, he was Dr. Chilton in Hannibal. He's also on BoJack Horseman, the mouse that I think Princess Carolyn dates, Uh Ralph. Yes, that's right. I remember. And like he's been on all major iterations of Law & Order. And of course, the role I have chosen him for today is for his best known role as ADA Raphael Barba on Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Are you a Law and Order Special Victims Unit fan? <laughs> I, I'm sorry, did you not know this about I, me? I don't think I've ever known that. <laughs> you're you're a fan of SVU? Yes, very much so. Oh my god. <laughs> That's amazing. I know. We should watch some of it together. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. This sounds familiar. Oh, uh, yeah, no, I think I remember quite a bit of SVU <laughs> between you and me. I I don't know. And listen, I know, guys, like Law & Order SVU, it's problematic in its own right. But what I find very interesting about Rafael Barba as a character is that at the time that he came into the series, which was a little bit after Stabler had left the show, uh-huh. they were going through a revolving door of ADAs. Nobody was testing well enough with audiences. They were getting brought in and booted out, like sometimes within the same episode. Uh-huh. It was bad. And like, guys, most of the ADAs on Law & Order, at least the long-running ADAs, have been women. So it's it's kind of interesting to me that he's my favorite ADA. The first man to do it? Yeah, the first man to do it. And like, guys, if you don't know anything about Barba, he was a poor kid from a rough neighborhood. He went to law school. He dresses obscenely well. I know. He has, you want to say something about the fashion? I just, (laughs) do you remember when we did Grease 2? Yeah. And I said I wanted to have sex with Maxwell Caulfield's vests. (laughs) 
I do. Do you remember when I said that? I do. Okay, I'm going to say the same thing, but about Barbara's fashion. Oh my God, the suit tie combos. I can't even. He just looks real good. You know what I'm saying? He does. And he's got a smart ass mouth. He sure does. And guys, never forget, he is in love with Captain Olivia Benson. Which is admittedly the gayest thing about the whole thing. (laughs) Because no matter how you slice it, Gay is love. <laughs> You're right. It's it's gay is an intense form of love. So and like most of the people who are fans of SVU are shippers of Olivia and Elliot, right? Elliot, yeah. Elliot, who's been absent from the show for like now ten years, and they're kind of bringing him back through organized crime. And like Barba's still around. Barba's still a character. He comes back every once in a while. And now they're in like this love triangle, and it's frustrating to me. As a fan, I kind of want Barba and Olivia to end up together. Stabler, or as I like to call him, Unstabler. Um, <laughs> You're right. I, I agree with you. I think Barba should end up with Olivia, but like Olivia is, I think Olivia should just stay married to herself, to be quite honest. I know, right? You know what I mean? And raise that adorable bisexual boy by herself. If only we had expanded this to TV for the first go around, because I know we'd be in a balls-deep conversation about Mariska Hargitay and Captain Olivia Benson. (laughs) But no, Barbara's funny to me. Like, from the little that I've seen of the show, I feel like Barbara is at the same time very, takes the job very seriously, but is also great comic relief in some bits. And it might not even be intentional. It just happens (laughs) naturally like that. And that's why I love Raul Esparza. He's just naturally kind of smarmy and smart-alecky, right? That character gives such good face. I know. You know what I mean? It's the eyes for me. Exactly. He's already got those dreamy eyes, and then he can just make them do fantastic things. There's so many great moments for Barba on that show, but the scene... Listen, his first episode is a great episode. That's like season 14, episode three, I think. Yeah. It's called 25 Acts. Uh-huh. It's where Anna Chomsky from My Girl plays an author who is like the author of Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, and yeah. she's on a talk show hosted by Roger Bart. Yes, and he is the perpetrator in that episode, yeah. He is. He takes her body of work, no pun intended, as an invitation to assault her. Gross. That's Barbara's first case. Uh-huh. That's where everybody's meeting him. No one knows what kind of ADA he's going to be. It's a great first case for Barbara's character, I feel like. It is. The case isn't going well because Anna Chomsky's character lied about writing the book. She didn't write it. Her college professor did. Oh, boy. And so she's uncredible on the stand, right? Uh Uh-huh. And so Barbara's only recourse is to make the jury see how violent Roger Bart's character is. Mm -hmm. And there's this whole demonstration with a belt because a belt was used in the assault. It left very rough bruises around Anna Chomsky's neck. Yeah. And he's trying to get Roger Bart to demonstrate before the court how he did it. And like He does it to him, doesn't he? He does. He gets Roger Bart so worked up that he chokes him. Yeah. You call that being dominant? Show me. Show me. Show me. Pull it. Pull it. Pull it! Tell me how you like it. Show me how you like it, Mr. Kane. Come on. Pull it. Pull it. This. Alright, that is enough, Mr. Barber. He takes that belt off. He's like, not a mark, not a mark. And then he holds up 
Anna Chomsky's picture from the ER. Yeah. With the purple and blue bruises around her neck. Oh, God. Not a mark. People's Exhibit 20, Jocelyn Paley's neck after their consensual sex game. Is this what excites you about sex, Mr. Kane? Hurting your victims. She liked it like that. You mean Jocelyn? You liked it like that. Wow. And like, that's just such a great first episode for Barbara because, yeah, Anna Chomsky was a very, what we call, an imperfect victim. She did lie about some things, but she wasn't lying about the assault. And he managed to still win that case for her. Yeah. Like, even Despite though... Despite that very big drawback. I mean, it shouldn't be a drawback. No, it shouldn't. Uh, but, like, it is societally. And we, our juries, are made up of society, unfortunately. So, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> number three. Okay, guys. For my number three pick, I have got the one. The only. The incomparable MJ Rodriguez as Blanca Evangelista in Pose. Oh my God. Oh no, not another Ryan Murphy project. And guys, it's not a Ryan Murphy project. It's a Ryan Murphy money project, okay? That's made with Ryan Murphy money, but created by trans people of color. Absolutely. <laughs> Why are Kate Mara, <laughs> Evan Peters, and James Vanderbeek getting top billing in the first <laughs> season? I'm glad they go away. I know. I'm so glad they go away. But MJ Rodriguez is the powerhouse of this show, in my opinion. Pose deals with the lives of queer individuals living in New York City during the height of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. Uh, just being ignored, just being allowed to just die. Yeah. And no one has any concern whatsoever. It's awful. When gay people were treated like deviants and vectors. Like, I mean, in a lot of ways, they still are. Mm -hmm. But this absolutely harrowing time in our history, and, and to watch MJ Rodriguez portray a trans woman of color in these times. The show is very authentic. I think the show does a really good job of putting you there with them and learning their experiences through their eyes. And MJ, mm-hmm. if if there's one thing MJ has got too much of, it's heart. I know. And that's exactly what she puts into Blanca. Blanca is a performer in the ballroom scene, mm-hmm. which was, you know, just kind of like a queer communion activity in mm-hmm. the 1980s and it still remains it still remains and lives on more as drag culture in today mm-hmm. in in the today times in the today times in the today times <laughs> i mean but ballroom is very different mm-hmm. ballroom is about the critique it's about the category it's about coming and putting your most into a specific category of fashion, dress, or style, aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And Blanca's journey from, you know, being eviscerated and disowned by her own family for being trans and then having to make it on her own with nothing and the way the ballroom community will always take in these poor lost souls who have been thrown away by the people who should be loving them mm-hmm. to create one large network of a big queer chosen family. Chosen family. And, you know, that is always one thing that is lacking in queer commu- in, in the queer community, I feel like, is the semblance of a home. We talked about this when we talked about Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. You know, the home, a home can be so important. 
And home doesn't even have to be a place. It can be a group. It can be uh, it can be a family of people that you choose for yourself. And that's what we see the character Blanca doing in Pose because she breaks away from a rather toxic house, the uh, <laughs> the house of abundance. That's right. Yes, the house of she breaks away from the house of abundance because she really does not like the way she is being treated by Electra, the oh. mother. Of the House of Abundance. That's right. If you hover over it on Netflix, that's the scene that plays when she breaks away from them. Six to eight performers crammed in one apartment trying to make a living performing for themselves <laughs> in New York City. And they're making they're making Blanca the Cinderella of the whole operation. I know. You know? Blanca Blanca always has the great ideas and Electra is always taking them as her own. Mm. So Blanca's like, fuck this shit. I've got the wherewithal to do this. I'm gonna start my own house. Exactly. And she starts the house of Evangelista. One thing that a Bl- that Blanca also has to struggle with is that she is HIV positive. Yeah. And it does develop into AIDS at one point in the series. I actually have not seen the last season of Pose. Neither have I. Like, at all. I'm and scared. And that is a crime that we must, you know, pay the fine for. I know. I'm just, I'm afraid, I'm Ross. waiting for it to get put. Like, I'm waiting for it to get put on streaming. But, uh-huh. like... And it probably is on streaming somewhere. I just haven't looked. But And that's a crime in and of itself. But, I mean, it's hard for me to pick a best Blanca moment because they're all so good. I know. Blanca wants to do the best she possibly can in her performance. And she also just wants to be a good mother. All right, I'm going to tell y'all the hard truth. You boys are young, black, gay, and poor. This world despises you. You get this disease, you die. They feel relieved that you're getting what you deserve. And living in a world like that can make you feel desperate for love. Now, if you want to be healthy and do it the healthy way, you can do it like how our community does, by forming houses. But it is much faster if you do it in an unhealthy way. And that's what I did back then when I started in this world in 83 or so, when none of us understood this plague. And through building her own family, she can then learn to love others. Exactly. And trust others that she will share true love with another individual one day. And that's it. Her whole performance is so inspiring. You know, MJ did Angel and Rent. Mm-hmm. You know, she did all that off Broadway and all those national tours as Angel. I mean, we we love we love MJ as Audrey in Little Shop of Horrors. Dude, that was so sick. <laughs> I loved that. And the, the singing when they do the AIDS cabaret. Yeah. At the hospital for all the AIDS patients. The song that Pray Tell and MJ sing together. (gasps) I say Blanca, Billy Porter and MJ, but it's Pray Tell and Blanca. I just, some stunning vocal performances in that show. Oh my God. And MJ giving a lot of them. I love it. I love you, MJ. Keep doing what you're doing. Also, first opening trans person to win a Golden Globe. Absolutely. And that, like, just happened this year. It really did. It gives me hope. It does. Kicking it on over to Carrie Ann. Guys, for my number three, I chose actress Laverne Cox. Oh, my God. 
I know. I love Laverne Cox. And I heard her speak when she came to Ball State. Oh, you did? I did. Listen to her talk about her life experience and the effect it's had on her acting career and all that stuff. It was great. Some trans visibility, finally. I know, right? And guys, you will no doubt recognize Laverne from Orange is the New Black. As Sophia Bursett? Yeah, Sophia Bursett! Oh my god, I can't, I can't wait to talk about this show twice in this recording. <laughs> I know, I right? really cannot. Our lists had some crossover. Talk to me a little bit about Sophia. Sophia is a trans woman in a women's prison. Yeah. In Orange is the New Black. Not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing. Like it was, and it was a very big deal at the time. Like, I mean, Sophia Bursett is the first trans feminine character I ever remember seeing in media. Right, right. Like that, that is just what, that is the first memory I have of that. When we meet Sophia in season one, we see this chick who's kind of sassy, who runs the salon. You want to look like the black best friend in the white girl movie. We see her struggling with access to her medication. What are those? Those are my pills. They are now. They ain't enough. I need four of those. I do what the chart says. I can't boil down all of her amazing moments. What are some honorable mentions? Like, I mean, obviously, I can't remember what episode it is. I can't remember. But the one where she's in solitary. That's in season four. Where she floods her cell. Yeah. Like, that's such a great episode. But, like... The episode where we get her backstory is honestly my favorite. Lesbian request denied. Yeah, lesbian request denied. Mm -hmm. It's like season one, episode three. Yeah. That whole episode, learning about her, you know, being charged with credit card fraud and becoming the woman she is Mm -hmm. and like how that affected her family. Yeah. It's wrenching and it's all amazing acting. Sophia's whole journey is just honestly amazing because the dynamic between her and her family members, obviously she has a wife and they have a son together. The whole thing about coming out as trans that late in life or at least being open about it, Mm -hmm. especially with your spouse. I love exploring that whole backstory between her and Crystal. Oddly enough, there is that whole thing with Sophia actually having hormone treatment in prison. Yeah. And pres- that's prescribed to her by the prison. And prison is a money trap. They're always rearranging shit to, you know, commit crimes. Mm-hmm. So uh, that level of corruption brings it about so that she's not allowed to have her hormone treatment anymore. Yeah. Or no, it's actually switched to something else, which is not at all adequate. It's like They're generic. They're going generic. Yeah. yeah. Listen, Doc, I need my dosage. I've given five years, $80,000 in my freedom for this. I'm finally who I'm supposed to be. Do you understand? I can't go back. The way her plot, her narrative just deepens and darkens. I know. Because she finally does get jumped and put in solitary confinement for, air quote, her own protection. Whatever! They just don't want to watch her all the time. So, Uh. And she actually becomes, you know, severely debilitated, as anyone would be, in solitary confinement and having to break out. And I am so glad, sorry, I'm not mad about spoilers, that she becomes free. In the end. Yeah. She is given her freedom. I mean, it is kind of for a gross reason. She was going to go to court and testify about that private prison corporation's evil practices, but they paid her 
enough money to make her not want to do that and to start a new life, and they released her from prison. I honestly do not blame that character for making that decision in any way, shape, or form. Exactly. You're going to get your freedom however you can. I know it's a gross decision, but she did not need to be incarcerated anymore. I feel like she served enough time for the crimes she committed, and I'm glad she got out. Number two. (laughs) In my number two slot today, folks, I have, here it is again, guys. We've already talked about it once, but (laughs) I have, I have Samira Wiley as Puse Washington in Orange is the New Black. Okay. No, I know. I'm also emotionally preparing myself for this conversation. Mm. The thing about the character of Puse on Orange is the New Black, is that in that entire women's prison, there is probably no other inmate less deserving of being incarcerated than Pousset. A lot of them probably don't deserve to be incarcerated, but it is low security prison. It is, yeah, minimum security when we first start out. But, you know, as the culture within the prison turns more and more foul. It was foul to begin with, but it turns more and more foul over the first, you know, four seasons. Pousset is always a character that, while staying aware of the bullshit going going on around all of them each and every day, still makes every point of that narrative that they appear in that much lighter. I know. Because Pousset herself is just such a goodin. Yeah. She's a good person. She's, she's a good being. She's a bit of a go- she's a bit of a goofball. I know. You know. Pousse, obviously, guys, I'm not, again, I'm not sad about the spoilers. It's been out for years. <laughs> We've already gone through the grieving process on this, folks. Like Pousse's character does eventually come to an end. And she is murdered in prison by one of the correctional officers. By the captain of the guard, actually. It's bad. And Well, actually, no. By a combination of the captain of the guard through his decisions. Mm-hmm. And then C.O. Bailey, the really innocent one, Ugh. who's just a kid. Yeah. He's 21 years old. Yeah, and then he... And at- he does not hold himself in the right crisis conduct to prevent somebody from passing and he killed her he suffocated her without meaning to but at the same time it was still allowed to happen it was murder on their watch that of course incites the rest of the narrative of the series yeah it is a literal like flashpoint season four is brutal it is and it all ends with quite possibly the best character on that show Pusey Washington meeting her end on a cold floor in the middle of all that chaos you know, of course, I'm the person that, that gives life to this character, but, you know, let's say I'm pulling myself away from it. I think it's going to be devastating. That was a very difficult scene to shoot. Um, and I remember afterwards just hugging her, and it was just a moment of really being grateful for life, being grateful for friendship, and um, I'm glad I got to do that with her. That whole horrible event then inciting the entirety of season five which is the big prison riot that changes the rest of the series forever and them trying to get justice for Pousset yeah to have that CEO arrested and tried for her death for causing her death whether you whether people want to think it was murder or manslaughter or whatever he's responsible he is responsible for her death and the government's absolute inability to accept 
liability to accept accountability for what happened to her. Yeah. One of the best moments I'll give, like the last episode of season four, she dies at the end of the penultimate episode, the second to last episode. And then that last episode is like the another Pousse backstory that we get about the night that she got arrested. Yeah. The first time. Her little lone adventure through New York City. She's not from New York City. Yeah. She was passing through New York City to, with her friends to see a cover band. <laughs> well, no, they were trying to see the real band, but it turned out to be a cover band. That's right. And this lovely night she spends in New York City with drag queens and smoking her stash away before she goes to Europe. And, and the Harry Krishnas. And the beauty, yeah, and the, yeah, the fake monks, the monks on bikes. She's smoking weed with monks and... It's a great that episode. That great party she goes to in the club mm-hmm. and at the end of the night she ends up getting arrested for having all that weed on her and for being in a no trespassing zone mm-hmm. with the monks, mind you. <laughs> yeah. It might be my favorite Poussey moment. There are countless ones before that. Like Amanda and Kenzie, mm-hmm. her and Tasty making fun of white ladies. <laughs> Let's talk about health care, Mackenzie. Oh, Amanda, we'd rather not. It's not polite. It's we- one of the best bits from that show. <laughs> no, I think just it might be my favorite Poussey moment. And the character's not even around anymore. There's this flashback sequence with the first time Tasty got out of prison. And was really, really struggling before she went back inside. And Poussey calls her from prison. Yeah. To check up on her, see how she's doing. You're, it's, you're not expecting it as the episode goes along. You know, by that point, you're like, Poussey's gone. No more Poussey. We've barely talked about her except for in a justice context. Yeah. Like, and then she just appears. Is it like the Ma? It is. She, like we talked about when we talked about anime, the Ma. All that intensity and we get this one moment, literally when she comes on screen and is acting like her old goofy self and we get to see her yeah. again. Oh my God. See her alive again. I know I told you about when my mom's passed, right? Yeah. I know I told you it hurt, but I never told you. How much? Look, I was tired too. But that sharp pain, it didn't last forever. It got dull and and then it went away. Or, or it was still there, but I, I, I couldn't feel it as much. Because I had these other feelings. Because all the good things I never expected. What good things? You in prison, P, what are you talking about? I'm talking about you. You know, what kind of life would that have been if I never met you? That's really the best Poussey moment. <laughs> because you're just able to unclench in that moment. All of these horrible, evil things happening to this diverse group of women. And they're trying to fight... To have something better. Most of them are just having fun destroying the prison. But, like, that's the best moment. That's the absolute best Poussey moment. And Samira Wiley from Washington, D.C. does an absolute amazing job. She is child to one of D.C.'s biggest congregable pastors. Really? Yeah, her her her, grand, her great-grandparents started one of the first black churches in the District of Columbia. That's amazing! And she is part of that legacy, that family. Oh, Samira! The Reverend Wiley. Baby! Yeah, yeah no. Oh I, my God! And I love that she uh, stole one of the Orange is the New Black Riders away from her <laughs> husband and married her. That's just amazing to me. It's amazing. Also, um, Samira Wiley and Handmaid's Tale, definitely give it a watch. Oh my God! She redefines Moira's character from the book. Like, it's just amazing. 
I'm going to kick it over to Carrie Ann for number two. Oh, God, guys. My number two choice. This is going to be a bit of a revision for Ross because he thought I was picking this person for something else, and I've revised my choice. Oh, God. Here we go. <laughs> guys, for my number two choice, I have chosen one Ms. Sarah Paulson. Lesbian Sarah Paulson? Lesbian Sarah Paulson, born in Tampa, Florida. Finally, something good to come out of Florida. <laughs> I'd ever seen her in before American Horror Story was a couple of episodes of SVU because there's an episode where she's on like right out of high school and she's like a kid. There's an episode in the late Stabler episodes where she plays a stone cold sociopath who- <laughs> Yeah, she does. Like she's <laughs> like a sociopath millionaire who murdered both her parents. Okay. And like the guy How from- How is that a sex crime? <laughs> You know I actually can't remember. <laughs> anyway, going on. Sometimes they get involved in shit I feel like does not pertain to their unit. No, that's that's common. <laughs> okay. That's common on that show. Anyway. The role I have chosen her for today is actually, and I know this is a controversial choice, okay? Okay. Because this is one of the most hated seasons of this show to have existed. Let me hear it. Guys, I've chosen Sarah Paulson today for her role as Lana Winters in the second season of American Horror Story, Asylum. Oh, thank God. <laughs> I was really worried there for a second. What did you think I was... Oh, I know what you thought I was going to say. I, I, I don't you know. You thought I was going to talk about Roanoke. Actually, no, not at all. <laughs> no. What did you think I was going to talk I, about? If you th I, I'm actually kind of mad that you thought... I thought that you... <laughs> would pick Roanoke's character, but... <laughs> You're offended. I get it. No, uh, I thought you were going to pick Dot and What's-Her-Balls. From Freak Show? From Freak Show. I thought you were going to talk about some duality shit or something. Dot like... and Bet. Dot and Bet, yes. Excuse you I'm very sorry. much. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But okay, all right. I mean, Lana Winters is iconic. Listen, Asylum might not be my fave, it's brutal. It is brutal. It's a brutal season. And some seasons are lighter than others. It's not my favorite season, but it is one of my preferred seasons. Yeah, me too. Like, it, it's it, it's a little silly, but like, which one of them isn't, you know? <laughs> no, that's what's interesting about Sarah Paulson to me is in that first season of American Horror Story. Billy Dean Howard, when she's like a side character. She's a nothing burger. I know. She's the medium in a house full of ghosts. Like, come on. But I also love the dynamic of us getting to a point in American Horror Story where Sarah Paulson is playing more than one character I know. In, in, in each season. It's like, such an evolution. And then she goes from season one to not being anybody to being the main character in season two. She's Lana Winters, aspiring journalist. She is a lesbian reporter in a relationship with Clea Duvall. Most lesbians in movies are usually in relationships with Clea Duvall. <laughs> Handmaid's Tale. I know, right? <laughs> She's a go-getter, Lana Winters is. She wants to advance her career. Lana Winters from the Gazette. I'm doing a story on your bakery. I have an appointment with Sister Jude. It was the story. I was going to do anything to get that story. What's going on? You had an accident. 
Like, she literally is trying to profile this asylum and then becomes a patient in the asylum. Not on purpose. Not on purpose. This isn't no, like, this isn't no Nellie Bly shit. Like, (laughs) she did not mean to get trapped there. And, like, it's especially relevant to, you know, the month, the time and day in which we are, because, you know, she is a lesbian and she's in an asylum where she's being subjected to aversion therapy for her homosexuality. That's the first time I've ever seen how, you know, aversion therapy worked in those days. Yeah. What a sick fucking practice. Where they would inject you that with where they would inject you with chemicals that would make you barf while they showed you same sex pictures. She just must really be a great actress because I don't know how she can I know that I know that cast members on Ryan Murphy projects have said before that there is aftercare and we do get it. Yeah, like, like at least we have that thought. I, I just think it would be hard to be Sarah Paulson to be all these different, all these different characters that have horrible things happen to them and be okay. I know afterwards after dramatizing all of it, you know. And that second season is especially grueling because not only do you have the aversion scene. But you also she have... She gets taken. She gets taken she's by... Hit, she's being held captive. She's being held captive by Dr. Threadson. Again, Zachary spoilers. Quinto. Yeah, Zachary Quinto. <laughs> and, like, she's kept prisoner in his basement. The scene where he makes her that grilled cheese... Excuse me, the croque monsieur. And, like, she's eating it. And, like, she's so sweaty and there's tears streaming down her face. Yeah. It's a meme. When you eat something nasty at somebody else's house. Yeah. And she looks at the camera and goes, this is good. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, another favorite moment from that season is when she finally gets out, out of the asylum after recording him on tape, Mm -hmm. admitting to murder. And she gets... I know. You know where I'm going. He's barely missed her. Yeah. Yeah. And he's following her out of the asylum. She gets in the taxi, closes the door. She's safe. And she presses that audio tape up to the window with him confessing to murder on it. And as the taxi drives away... She flips him the bird. (laughs) That's amazing. And and I also love the reprisal of Lana Winters. Obviously, we get like a stint at the end of that season where she's like in older age, you know, in modern times, because that's in the 60s, right? Yeah, because she she gets famous not only for being, you know, the mother of the the serial killer. Yeah, of the serial killer, but she murders him and then does the full Geraldo on the asylum. Chef's kiss, no notes. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, she gets up into being later in life and she's like the... Diane Sawyer of that universe. Yeah, indeed. And I love that we get her reprisal in like season six. I know. You know, like I love that she's one of those characters that they bring back. <laughs> Ryan Murphy, how dare you? Like this poor woman. I know. She She's going to need treatment. I'm just <laughs> saying. Also, another fun fact about Sarah Paulson. She's into women who are way older than she is. <laughs> she's married to an actress right now named Holland Taylor. Holland Taylor is 80 years old. Sarah Paulson, age like circa 45, circa. is married to 80-year-old Holland Taylor. I love it. She is into older ladies, guys. I love that for her. Before being married to Holland Taylor, she was married to Sherry Jones. From the village. From the village and from Signs. Yes, and from Signs. Which we've, both, which we've done both of. And Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Without further ado, let's get to our number one choices for this list. Number one. yeah. (laughs) Guys, for my number one favorite queer performance, 
I've got Titus Burgess as <laughs> Titus Andromedon oh in Unbreakable God. Kimmy Schmidt, the Netflix original series. Listen, I always say you are Titus and I am your Lillian. You're the Lillian to my Titus. <laughs> that dog does not look like me, Lillian. I feel like we have I feel like I have a lot of Lillians to my Titus. <laughs> like But I'm like the main one, right? Yeah, sure. You can be my main Lillian. <laughs> Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, the whole premise, which is ridiculous, is that Ellie Kemper, Kimmy Schmidt herself, has been imprisoned by Reverend John Wayne Gary Wayne, played by John Hamm of (laughs) Mad Men, in a bunker in Indiana as part of a religious cult. He kidnapped her when she was 15 or four. She kidnapped. He kidnapped her when she was 14 and they just got found out by the time she was almost 30. It's a little bleak. Yeah, it's a little bleak. And I can't believe we're basing a whole comedy series on this premise. (laughs) But Kimmy decides to stay in New York City where she and the other Indiana mole women have gone for a TV interview. She befriends one Titus Andromedon. (laughs) Not to begin with, though. No, yeah. She's looking for a place to live on the cheap and she doesn't have that much money but she she meets Lillian Kalschthupper which is literally Lillian Kalfucker her new landlord and and Lillian wants to give her a closet in the apartment of one Titus Andromedon who is a very big very black very loud gay man <laughs> i love him who lives in the basement of lillian's building protect titus at all costs his apartment is ridiculous <laughs> it's a rainbow of colors from surface to surface i love it all of these props he's stolen from broadway shows ever <laughs> since he ran away from mississippi to come be gay in new york <laughs> He's tried out for so many shows and never gets cast. Which is so funny because he's the original Sebastian. I know, he's in the Broadway production of The Little Mermaid. I love Titus Burgess. He's also notable for being in the, uh, oh, that Beach Boys musical. (laughs) I think... Or maybe it was Xanadu. I I can't remember. Same vibe. I feel like it was not Xanadu. Titus Burgess is a great performer. He's a great singer. His rendition of Poor Unfortunate Souls from oh The Little God. Mermaid. Like, he was like, they cast me as Sebastian. I asked to be Ursula, but like, whatever. <laughs> and just Titus's character is that outrageous comic buddy sidekick relief. Absolutely. And like, it, there are just so many golden moments. I vividly remember all my past lives. There's Cyrus, the first openly gay slave. Alphonse, who almost invented the raisin. And Napoleon, a very sick parrot. No pug dogs? For the last time, no. My show's on the internet, where Beyonce and the president live. I'm not a handyman, although that was my nickname one summer on Fire Island. One of my favorite episodes, my as a matter of fact, it is my favorite episode of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, because <laughs> the episodes are always titled, Kimmy does this, Kimmy, like, the gang does this, like, you know? Like, Ernest goes to jail, yeah, or no. whatever. <laughs> Kimmy goes to school. And when she's, when he's, because she decides she's going to go back and get her GED. She never finished high school. And Titus is dropping her off for school. <laughs> he tries to hug her. She goes, no, don't. And he's like, don't be embarrassed of your Titus. <laughs> she goes, what if the other uneducated adults see you? See, see me. See you hug me. And he's like, I hope one day when you're an old balding black man, you have a Kimmy who treats you like this. <laughs> When she's trying to wake him up, Titus, why is your face so greasy? I fell asleep eating a hot pocket. 
That's so you, I can't even. No, it's just, I see a lot of myself and my own quirks in Titus. (laughs) You want to go to the mall? But I already did something today. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it just... You know my favorite Titus moment? Mm. It's when they're doing the Pinot Noir music video. Pinot Noir, caviar, mid-sized car. And, like, they do it in that old house, and, like, all the bats... Yes! All the, the bats classic wake up. Titus moment. No, okay, no, first of all, when they're trying to do it outside the, the strip club, because it's the fanciest looking place in their neighborhood, and he, he, he keeps making Lillian call his cell phone for the track because it's his <laughs> ringtone. We don't have enough money for an iPod, I guess. <laughs> when they're doing, we see the video footage of them trying to shoot inside the abandoned chandelier factory. Oh my god. <laughs> Pinot Noir, mid sized car. Oh, Pinot Noir. And his shrill tones wake up all the bats that are sleeping in that abandoned factory. It's amazing. And they swarm him. The bats, the singing, the singing woke up the bats. And then when he turns, I feel like we're not capturing the elegance we discussed in the production (laughs) meeting. God. He is always flabbergasted about everything. One more favorite of mine. Okay, also, we, we love when Titus goes lemonading. I know. For that whole stretch, but another favorite moment. We One con- more. We constantly get flashbacks to his childhood in Mississippi. <laughs> and But, like, he was married to a woman before he fled Mississippi. Yeah. Vonda. Yeah. <laughs> Vonda. We see their wedding, and he's talking to one of his aunts. And he goes, I'm going to start at Vonda's uncle's mulch business on Monday. And his old aunt goes, what was that, dear? And he goes, I said, I'm going to start at Vonda's uncle's mulch business on Monday. I work Monday at Vonda's uncle's mulch business. What, dear? I said I'm a homosexual having a panic attack. What was that, dear? I said I'm a homosexual having a panic attack. Because <laughs> I've just married a woman. I know. I just, Titus just just bring is the absolute... He's the best thing about the show. Ellie Kemper does a great job, and Carol Kane is unmissable, but <laughs> Titus... Is that why you came back for me? That dog does not look like me, Lillian. It's too funny. So yeah, guys, he's my number one. He's the most entertaining to me. Let's kick it over to Carrie Ann for her number one pick. Okay, guys, I'm very proud. And you should be. Of this first pick. Guys, my top performance by a queer actor is one of the oldest Shakespearean actors still living. This man is... 83 years old, Sir Ian McKellen. Oh my God. I know. I love that gay man. By the time he decided that he wanted to act, he pretty much got every great Shakespeare role he ever wanted. Like, he got his start in Richard II, and then he went on to play Romeo, Macbeth, Iago, King Lear, like every major big Shakespeare part. Mm-hmm. And like he also was in a production of Amadeus. Was he really? Where he played Salieri, which with all of my being, I wish I could time travel. To and, see. Yeah, to see for myself. He was a good looking man. I know. He was a good looking man. A back very in the day. adorable gay man. Also, him being in love with Derek Jacobi when they were younger. Yeah, but neither of them knew it. Oh my God. <laughs> Madly in love. But guys, listen. 
listen, Shakespeare's all well and good, but I'm here to talk about the movies. He was in a filmed version of Richard III in which he was reviewed as being, quote, a lethally flamboyant incarnation. Absolutely. (laughs) Soliloquies to the camera? Exactly. I'm here for it. And like a more apropos mention for this might just be his incredible role as Magneto in X-Men, which is an entire queer allegory. Of course he's in Tom Hanks Runs from Catholics for two hours. What's that? The Da Vinci Code. Oh, okay, okay. Absolutely, absolutely. But guys... We know why we're here. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know we you know. all know why we're here. My favorite role of his of all time is Gandalf the Grey slash White in the Lord of the Rings franchise and in the Hobbit movies. Mithrandir. Yeah, I know. Oh my god. What a character. I literally don't know anyone else that would have been able to do that. I mean, Christopher Lee thought it was going to be him. Well, Christopher Lee is where Christopher Lee belongs. <laughs> at Isengard. As Sourman. And I have no qualms with that at all. Absolutely not. Because, like, I can't imagine anyone else being Sauron either. Exactly. Like, that, the casting in that fantasy enterprise was just so perfect. I know. In every way, shape, and form. And... Ian McKellen is the crown jewel. He is. He really is. And, like, I hate that that whole experience kind of ruined acting for him. Like, especially by the time it got around to The Hobbit, where he wasn't acting in scenes with people. It's just him in a green screen, like... And, like, tennis balls on dowel rods. Yeah, Like, yeah. I really hate that for him. He's from the stage. Yeah. That's his home. He's He's from the stage originally. He talks about not being able to look... Martin Freeman or Elijah Wood in the eye yeah. when they act together to create the difference in height. Yeah. And like, that's just, I hate that for him. And but, yet still managed to do it exquisitely. Yeah, like that that role, that character is so important to me on so many levels. Like Lord of the Rings as a trilogy, it's famous for those great monologues at the end, right? Mm-hmm. Like, those are the best ones. And there's many of them in all three movies. In The Fellowship of the Ring, th- this is my favorite Gandalf scene. It's the scene where they're in Moria, and they've come to a diversion. I hate you. In the cave. I hate you. Do you hate me because- Because I was going to talk about it. <laughs> Go on. You talk about it. No, I'm serious. I'm happy for you. You talk about it. No, yeah. They've come to a diversion in the cave, and Gandalf doesn't remember which way to go. So he's just sitting on his own. He's thinking. And then, you know, he and Frodo have this whole conversation about Gollum. Because Gollum's following them through Moria, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, how Gollum has some part to play in this whole story. And Frodo just gets thinking yeah. ab- about what they're doing. Taking this great ring of evil all the way across the land to a volcano to dump it in and destroy it. And he's just thinking about all the evil in the world and how terrible it all is. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. Literally every time I hear that with these ears of mine, my tear ducts, they just 
open up. I know. And it just all comes flooding in because, like, so true, Wizard Queen. I know. So <laughs> true. No, like, listen, guys, when I'm feeling low, when I'm feeling low about the state of the world, I come back to that. Oh, no, yeah. Yeah. And the fact that Gandalf is basically part of the fabric of the very world they live in. 7,000 years old. He was, like, there at the beginning of some shit in a different form. He has the benefit of knowing that terrible times do happen. Yeah. But there is a cycle to life. And the very power that that character holds allows him to return from a place where he should not be able to return from. He's a god! Literally a deity. Like, <laughs> But yet, he is still seen as just a man who is a wizard from Arnor or whatever, you know? Like, he's just a very sweet... He can be very, very sweet, but very, very angry. Uh-huh. Because he's, he's so powerful. Oh, man. That scene where he excises Saruman from Theoden is also a great That's scene. That's so good. I know. And there's just too many Gandalf moments. We don't have enough time to talk about all of them. You shall not pass? Unless we do. I mean, <laughs> yes, that's probably one of the most notable. But, like, this, we need. I know. We need to cover uh, it on this podcast. Long form. Long form for the Patreon. It's going to be amazing. Amazing. With a timeless British actor playing a timeless character of British literature. Yes. It's just, it's it's the perfect marriage. Thank you, Peter Jackson. I won't thank you for everything, but I'll thank you for that. I do love that story that Ian McKellen tells where he didn't think he was going to be able to do this movie because it conflicted with his X-Men schedule. Mm -hmm. And like literally Peter Jackson came to his home in England, very much like Gandalf, Comes to Bilbo. Comes to Bilbo in The Hobbit and mm -hmm. is like, let's go on an adventure together because you're perfect for it. Literally. And it's so, I just, ugh, I love it. I can't wait to do Lord of the Rings on this podcast. I know, it's going to be just amazing. Ah! Oh, queen. <laughs> queen wizard, let's go. Guys, I hope you enjoyed our lists. Like, obviously, they are not entirely empirical or emotional choices. No, not at all. We could do this again with different people, probably, but like... Yeah, we could. We honestly could. Your number one was way better than mine, but I love my number one. I know. I also enjoy your number one. Mm. It's just like, just Ian McKellen, man. Just want to shout out some of the performances. I'm glad that we have a nice array here of queer talent that we've talked about here today. I love it so much, and I love celebrating them, and there's so many people that we didn't talk about. I know. That we will hopefully get a chance to talk about at a later date. Yeah. But, like, I just, guys, like, let us know. Let us know on Twitter. Let us know on Patreon. What are your favorite queer performances? Oh, yeah, be letting us know at on Twitter at Kick and Stream, K-I-C-K-N-S-T-R-E-A-M. Like, let us know. I'm so interested. We'd love to hear from you guys. Next month is July. I'm kind of sad Pride Month is going to be over. I know. Uh, but every month is Pride Month, so it doesn't really matter. Exactly. Um, but guys, July is coming, and um, I'm feeling the millennium. You're feeling the millennium? I can feel the millennium coming on, <laughs> and um, I'd like to talk about some things. You'd like to talk about some projects from the early aughts. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I would. And we, oh, we've got a good array coming to you. July is going to be fun. It is going to be fun. We're going we're gonna to break back into our childhood 
<laughs> so Ross, don't don't tease them any longer. What what's going to be our first project for July, folks? Next week we are going to be covering the 2001 Gary Marshall classic. Gary Marshall, <laughs> The Princess Diaries. Guys, I have been training for this for like three years. Oh my God, Fontaine and Mary Poppins. Yes. Can you fucking believe? Oh my God. But I mean, Fontaine's not really Fontaine. Fontaine's really Mia, Therm- Mia Thermopolis. Because <laughs> that's Anne Hathaway's breakout role, baby. I'm so excited to dissect this. Until then, you can follow us on Twitter at KickNStream. K-I-C-K-N-S-T-R-E-A-M. You can write the show at kickingandstreamingpodcast at gmail.com. That's with an and, not an ampersand. And don't forget, folks, please be practicing the three R's. Rate, review, retweet. Rate, review, retweet, folks. We want everyone to come and join this little summer watch party. If you haven't checked us out on the Patreon yet, Guys, so much content is coming up. Uh, so much. So we're, much. We're doing long form through October. So for $5 a month, you're getting double. You're getting double. You're getting double our committed two posts per month. Absolutely you are. So guys, come check us out. We'll see you over there. Oh my God. Become a little onion to the five. You'll be so glad you did. More quality content coming to you from kicking and streaming. Until then, I'm Carrie. I'm Ross. And as always, sorry, sorry mom. mom.